0: From the ACLU, this is At Liberty. I'm Molly Kaplan, your host. This past weekend, the National Board of the ACLU convened an emergency meeting to respond to the events at the Capitol building on January 6th. After hours of deliberation, the board unanimously passed a resolution calling for the impeachment of Donald Trump. The call comes with just days left in the president's term. The resolution published by the National Board states that President Trump has violated his oath to preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution and poses a grave and imminent threat to civil liberties. On Monday, the House followed suit, filing an official impeachment resolution. Joining us to discuss this historic moment and how the ACLU came to its call for impeachment is Susan Herman, ACLU president and Ruth Bader Ginsburg professor of law at Brooklyn Law School. I want to start with the decision made by the ACLU National Board to impeach Donald Trump. We'll get into the specifics, but at a really high level, how did the ACLU get there? And what is the precedent for our calling for impeachment at all?
1: Well, I think it's a sign of how extraordinary the past four years have been that we found ourselves discussing the impeachment of Donald Trump, not for the first, but for the second time. The board had previously voted in 2019 to impeach Mr. Trump. But as satirist Andy Borowitz has said, it seems that full immunity from Donald Trump requires two doses of impeachment. This is a very unusual proceeding for us, as you noted, Molly. The ACLU is nonpartisan, so we don't usually discuss whether a particular person should be in office. We don't support or oppose candidates for elected or appointed office. So we didn't endorse a candidate in the 2016 election. But after Trump was elected, we publicly announced that if he implemented the policies that he'd been campaigning on, so many of which were xenophobic and destructive of civil liberties, that we'd see him in court. But I think that just nothing seemed to check his disdain for the rule of law. And so 2019, after quite a full and nuanced discussion, the board voted to support Donald Trump's impeachment on the ground that he was putting his own interests above the law, as demonstrated by his telephone conversation with the president of Ukraine but the Senate voted not to remove him from office then, and so after a series of attempts to overturn the results of the election, culminating in the horrific events of last week, we found ourselves again discussing for only the third time in our history whether to support impeachment of a president. So to me, it's all part of a sequence of events about the past four years.
0: And Susan, just so people have the background for those of us who either are not lawyers or haven't been in civics class for a very long time, at a basic level, what is the role of impeachment? What purpose does it serve? And what does it mean for the ACLU to add its own institutional weight to the call since In very practical terms, this is a means of accountability
1: that only Congress can carry out. So I think I'll start by putting on my constitutional law professor hat. Please. And just saying that the Constitution assigns the House of Representatives the decision whether to impeach a president. It's their sole decision. And if they do impeach, then the Senate then gets to decide whether they want to remove the president from office, which has to be by a two-thirds vote. So impeachment is one of three paths the Constitution contemplates for removing a president from office, the others being, of course, election and the 25th Amendment, which people have also been talking about. Now, legal authorities have assumed that a sitting president cannot actually be convicted of a crime. So in addition to providing a path toward the possible removal of the president, impeachment is also a way for the House of Representatives to hold a president accountable for high crimes and misdemeanors, the House of Representatives can declare that the president is in fact guilty of high crimes and misdemeanors, despite the fact that the president is currently immune from criminal prosecution. So it's an important mode of accountability. And the judgment of impeachment, in addition to being a path toward possible removal, it just stands as a record, condemning lawless conduct, regardless of whether it's followed by ultimate removal. So
0: I wanted to ask, It's worth noting that we are right at the end of President Trump's term, literally days left. Why impeach at all when we will soon have a new president? And worth noting that there are matters of extreme life-altering importance on future President Biden's list, and we have an agenda that we want him to carry out right from the beginning. Is there any risk that impeachment or the call for impeachment is a distraction to the new president?
1: Well, I think that what we're doing as we're asking President Biden to do is we're trying to multitask. We think that, of course, we are calling on the Biden-Harris administration to accomplish a great deal, really, in virtually all of the 14 areas of civil rights and civil liberties in which we work. But we think that the House of Representatives and then the Senate doesn't need to spend all of its time on impeachment and then possibly on a removal proceeding. We hope that they can actually attend to both. And I think that impeachment is important, even if the president is not removed, because as I was saying, I think what the impeachment does is it provides accountability. It stands as a record that, in fact, this president has committed high crimes and misdemeanors. Plus, if the Senate decides to vote for conviction, Even if it's too late for removal to be relevant, even if it's after January 20th, the Senate can still decide that Donald Trump would be disqualified from holding a future office, future office of the Constitution says, of honor, trust or profit. And so that would have an important consequence, too. So what's at issue here is not only whether or not there's removal of the president before January 20th, but also that important future question of whether he would be eligible to run again.
0: I also want to address what counts as an impeachable offense. It's defined in the Constitution, as I understand it, as treason, bribery, or, quote, other high crimes and misdemeanors. But the Constitution doesn't in itself define high crimes and misdemeanors terribly well. What is our, as the ACLU, best interpretation of this clause and what it means?
1: Well, for one thing, I think we don't think that high crimes and misdemeanors means that you have to be technically guilty of a criminal (laughs) offense. Impeachment and removal are political decisions to be made by the House and then by the Senate. They're not legal decisions about whether or not somebody has violated the terms of a statute and therefore can be prosecuted. So that's one thing that we don't think. We do not think that it means that you have to be guilty of something that's technically a crime. On the other hand, I think that we would not want to see a president impeached for any garden variety crime. If the president has done something to injure somebody, I don't think that they would be impeachable just because they had injured a particular person. So what high crimes and misdemeanors doesn't mean is it doesn't mean that we just don't like the way the president is performing his job. So with the constitutional law professor had again, one of the framers of the Constitution, George Mason, had originally proposed that on the list of impeachable offenses should be maladministration by the president. And James Madison objected. He said that means that the president would just be serving at the pleasure of the Senate. And that's just too vague. So George Mason was persuaded. And so he dropped the maladministration idea and instead you know, left his list at high crimes and misdemeanors. Now, I think, to me, you know, the ACLU has never been in the business of actually having to interpret those words across a wide variety of examples. But to me, uh, what makes most sense is Professor Lawrence Tribe has said that if you put high crimes and misdemeanors right after treason or bribery, the implication seems to be that the impeachable high crimes and misdemeanors should be comparable in some way to the treason or bribery. And that means not it's a serious offense, but more that it's an offense that, is a kind of a major offense against the system of government, a serious abuse of governmental power, and something that really goes to the president's fitness and suitability to be president, not just whether the president has committed a crime. So I think that's what the board was talking about when we were talking about whether there were grounds for impeachment, not just whether Donald Trump had committed a crime, that's a separate question. And in fact, he could be prosecuted for a crime after he's left office. But we were thinking about whether there were high crimes or misdemeanors in the sense that he has done things that really are not consistent with his role as president.
0: And more specifically, we've described the high crime as subverting the results of a Democratic election. Could we have taken other paths? Were there other considerations at play? I mean, I know, for example, that Congress went with, quote, inciting violence against the government of the United States. Why did we take the path that we took?
1: Well, one thing that concerned us about our declaring that the president incited the riot at the Capitol is that the ACLU was the organization that litigated the case of Brandenburg versus Ohio in 1969. Now, that case was the case in which the Supreme Court set a very high bar for prosecuting somebody for a crime, for inciting violence. And Brandenburg, I wouldn't even want to quote the horrible, nasty things that Brandenburg said, but they were fact actually... More racist and more inflammatory than anything that Donald Trump said on January the 6th. He was a KKK. Brendenburg was with the KKK. And again, you know, most horrible comments you could imagine. But nevertheless, the Supreme Court said that he could not be prosecuted for inciting a riot because incitement would have to mean that you were directing people in a way that would produce imminent lawless action and would be likely to incite and produce such action. So when you compare Donald Trump's remarks and what he said to the crowd, to what Brandenburg said, the Brandenburg standard is a very, very high bar, which we think is generally appropriate because we think that people who organize demonstrations or speak at demonstrations should not be prosecuted just because of what they've said. It should be a very high bar. So I'll tell you one thing that we were thinking about was that the ACLU just in November was representing a Black Lives Matter activist. And it was a case called Dover McKesson. The case is about DeRay McKesson, one of the Black Lives Matter activists. That's right. So DeRay McKesson spoke at a rally and he was being sued by an officer who went in the case by John Doe. The officer was trying to hold DeRay McKesson liable for the fact that at the demonstration, somebody else who nobody claimed that McKesson knew or directed his action, but somebody else threw a rock that injured the officer. And so the question was whether or not McKesson could be liable for the fact that somebody at a demonstration had done something violent that he did not suggest that they do and in which he was not involved. The court dismissed the action, at least for now, and we feel like our thought experiment here was if you looked at the kinds of comments that Donald Trump made on January 6th, and if you thought, what if there were comparable comments that were made by somebody who was organizing a different kind of protest in a demonstration? And we were concerned, we were reluctant to judge the president's actions under the Brandenburg standard because that's a standard that we very much believe in and we want to be available to be used in other circumstances. And so because there were so many other grounds that seemed to us to be so compelling because the president had an entire pattern of trying to subvert the election results, we didn't think it was necessary to declare whether or not this speech would, in fact, violate the Brandenburg standard. Now, saying that, I do want to note that, first of all, this is not a criminal offence, and so the Brandenburg standard is not strictly applicable. And second of all, according to the Supreme Court, there are different standards under the First Amendment that would apply to the president. If you're a public official, there's a different standard, different expectations, because your role gives your speech a different kind of power, and it's a different kind of role. But nevertheless, we did talk about incitement and we were very concerned about the president's actions on January 6th, but it just seemed to us that we didn't want to be opening ourselves to criticism in the future that we were being inconsistent if we wanted to defend speech by somebody else organizing or speaking at a demonstration that somebody might believe was too similar. So, again, we didn't make a judgment of whether or not this would pass the Brandenburg standard. But we felt that because there were other such very strong grounds to make the decision, that we didn't have a need to make that difficult decision. It's very hard in the heat of the moment to be objective about whether or not in the future you would be willing to live by the standard that you would applied here. So you framed what happened on January
0: 6th. As part of a pattern of behavior, why was it important to, and more specifically, the resolution lists Trump's, quote, extended pattern of bad faith conduct. Why was it important that it was a pattern of behavior and not just one action in this case?
1: Well, again, Molly, I think if we had just looked at one action, what did the president do on January 6th? Or what about the phone call to Secretary of State Raffensperger in Georgia? It's possible that we might have found that one action was enough. To constitute high crimes and misdemeanors. But there's no reason not to attend to the fact that there was a very substantial pattern. And so what the board included in the resolution in terms of the pattern was first that the president had repeatedly made false statements about voter fraud and improprieties that were designed to undermine the legitimacy of the election results, including in a series of frivolous lawsuits without evidence to support the claims. Second, that he had pressured election officials in several states including Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Georgia, to interfere with the results of the election, including a January 2nd taped phone call in which he abused the power of the presidency by demanding that the Georgia Secretary of State find 11,780 votes, the exact number he needed coincidentally enough, and threaten criminal liability if the Secretary of State did not And then two more, one that he had sought to disenfranchise people of color by targeting many of those efforts, his efforts at counties and jurisdictions, such as in Arizona, Georgia, Michigan, and Wisconsin, with predominantly black or brown populations. And also, in addition, directing Vice President Pence to block Congress's certification of the Electoral College results, where the vice president had neither the authority nor the grounds to do so. Now, again, this pattern altogether It's just very substantial. So perhaps one of those acts would have been enough, but we weren't called upon to decide whether one of those acts would be enough because there was such an obvious pattern there. Susan, as an
0: organization grounded in the principles of the Constitution and obviously made up of many, many lawyers, it's really important that there is a strong legal case. but. Part of this conversation also involves things outside of the realm of the best legal case. And of course, there are considerations like the horror of seeing a Confederate flag paraded throughout the Capitol or a lynching structure erected on the Capitol steps, the complicity of some, not all, law enforcement, you know, and the deep implications of race in all this. And I'm curious how that tension was worked through as you sort of hold space for what we are seeing with our own eyes and hearing with our own ears, and then also trying to uphold grounding everything that we say in really strong legal arguments.
1: Yeah, I think that's a great way to put it, Molly, that we need to hold space for both. And at the board meeting, toward the beginning of the discussion, there were two very powerful statements made, one by our affiliate representative from D.C., who really talked about grounding her call for the board to take this action very much in what she had experienced and what the people in D.C. had experienced. And then interestingly, one of the next people to speak was from Idaho. And she talked about how she was feeling the repercussions in Idaho, that people she knew were afraid of what was happening, and there she felt personally connected. So there was a lot of emotion. But I think that, as you said, you have to hold space for both. To me, a lot of the civil rights movement was based on outrage, but law was its tool. So I think people on the board were very much aware and they were feeling many emotions and many reactions, which are certainly not invalid or not out of place. But at the end of the day, what we were really looking at was then not putting them aside, but funneling those reactions into a careful discussion about what the constitution means and comparing president trump's conduct to what we think the constitution provides
0: the resolution obviously as
1: you mentioned
0: covers the attempt to disenfranchise black voters but it doesn't mention explicitly at least in what we've put out so far that trump specifically stoked white supremacists to enter the capitol and that there were important race dynamics at play and we've already talked about how in the deliberations there was a need to hold space for all of these factors but Is it ever difficult in the process of thinking about the public-facing materials, thinking through how to be inclusive of all of the arguments and not, in some ways, not always having to be so logic-based and speaking in sort
1: of a legal framework? Well, that's a great question. So I think there was not a lot of disagreement among the board about what the proper grounds for impeachment should be. And the other thing that we discussed that I think is also very important is that this resolution is not the board's or the ACLU's only statement or only action in the area. So this was just one piece. So what the board was trying to do was to narrow down what we needed to say about impeachment. And on a number of occasions, board members said, well, why don't we also say, and then they would propose saying additional things. And what happened then was that the staff would say, well, we actually just wrote an entire piece about that. We just sent out a communication. We just sent a letter on that. And so I think the board was seeing that we were not here trying to say everything that the ACLU had to say on this subject. What we were trying to do was to address the grounds for impeachment. Now, having said that, what you were saying about white supremacists, there were. So here's a thing that I think a lot of people would be surprised to know. The board of directors of the ACLU is 60 percent people of color. And there were quite a few members of the board who wanted to see us lift up the issues about race even higher than had been in the initial draft. And they were very concerned. That's where we were talking about the impact of setting aside the election on people who live in places like Milwaukee and Detroit and Maricopa County. And in a wonderful podcast and YouTube piece that was done by Monica Hopkins, which you mentioned before, as well as Dale Ho and Jeffrey Robinson, Dale Ho described what was happening at the Capitol that day as just the latest chapter in the backlash against the vote becoming less white. So I think that that element of that there was a lot of Racism involved in this was something that we very much wanted to be part of this document. But again, we weren't trying to be comprehensive about everything that the ACLU was going to say. And just to plug that, that
0: was a podcast on this podcast,
1: on ACLU's At Liberty
0: podcast. So thank you for that, Susan. I want to talk about the fact that we are recording this on Tuesday. The House is set to vote on Trump's impeachment on Wednesday. Where does impeachment go from there? What is the process and how does the ACLU play a role?
1: Well, the process from here on in is that the House will take a vote on their articles of impeachment. They'll have whatever debate they have and they will take a vote. And then they will be sending the resolution if they adopt one to the Senate. And I believe that Senator McConnell has already said that he has no intention of holding a hearing before January 20th. So if that's true, then Donald Trump will not actually be removed from office prior to the end of his term. And the end of his term will come on January 20th when President Biden is sworn in. Nevertheless, as I was mentioning before, the Senate could hold a proceeding after January 20th in which they would decide whether or not Donald Trump should be disqualified from seeking office. So there would still be a point even if President Trump were no longer in office. The ACLU's role at this point in terms of the impeachment itself is we have been calling on our members to talk to their representatives if they do think that President Trump should be impeached. And we also feel that it was important for us to have made a statement About the importance of accountability here and that President Trump should be accountable for his whole series of actions, not even just what happened on January 6th, but the whole series of actions.
0: And impeachment is inherently a political process and by extension is partisan or can seem partisan. How does the ECLU get around those claims of partisanship when it calls for impeachment?
1: Well, Molly, I think the best way to get around an appearance of partisanship is not to be partisan. And so people complain to me all the time that the ACLU must agree with Democrats because our positions correlate more often with Democrats than those of Republicans. Now, of course, we're acting at a principle. We're not acting because we're trying to emulate the Democratic Party. And I think it's a sad commentary on what's happened to the Republican Party recently that we are finding fewer areas of agreement with Republicans across the aisle than we have before. One of the things that I've suggested to the board in recent years is that in making a decision like the one that we just made to impeach President Trump, that the board should have a thought experiment and imagine that the person they're talking about is not a Republican, but a Democrat, And to ask themselves the question, would we be applying the same standard if the person who's involved is somebody who we thought would actually be on the whole very good for civil liberties? And so we talked a lot in the 2019 impeachment debate about institutional considerations and whether there were times when the ACLU should just maintain a low profile, just because we don't want everyone to think that we always do what the Democrats do, even though that's not why we do it. So that was a serious discussion, and we've had that discussion on other occasions. But interestingly, we really did not have that discussion here. There was nobody who wanted to take the position that the ACLU should just stay out of this. It was 100% of people who said what happened here was just too extreme and too extraordinary.
0: Yes, that's true. All right. More violence on the part of Trump supporters has been all but promised by organizers. And I'm curious, how are we monitoring and responding to these threats, which are just days away?
1: Well, I'm sure that people, especially at our D.C. affiliate, are very much aware of what's been going on. The ACLU has been very busy during this period because even in addition to just holding our breaths until January 20th and just fearing that there might be more violence... We also have a number of other actions that we've taken. We've called in for an investigation of Donald Trump and his enablers and whether there were crimes committed. We've also called the D.C. affiliate in particular has called for an investigation into the Capitol Police and what was going on there in terms of why there was not a better and more efficient response to the riot at the Capitol. So there's a tremendous amount that people are thinking about right now. And I think it's going to be a very long week plus a little bit until the inauguration I also want to mention that, Susan, your term as
0: president of the ACLU is coming to an end. There are other presidents in the world, and you are one of them. And I am wondering what comes next for you. And also just a footnote, that this is quite the way to <laughs> to go out, Susan.
1: Yeah. David Cole said to me, we're not just letting you glide away, are we? <laughs> <laughs> it's sort of like how he started,
0: right, in November of 2016. <laughs> (laughs)
1: Well, actually, my tenure as president of the ACLU exactly coincides with two terms of Barack Obama and one term of Donald Trump. I was elected in October 2008, just weeks before Obama was elected. And I will be stepping down at our board meeting on January 30th, which will be 10 days after the Biden administration will have taken over. So I think that's pretty dramatic. So we are having our own transition at the ACLU. So I am very much looking forward to seeing what my successor will do to lead the ACLU into our second century, where we will be, I'm sure, just as important as we were during our first century. And I will be getting back to just one job, just my day job, where I think another rather amazing bit of coincidence here is that my first constitutional law class for spring semester is happening on Inauguration Day.
0: (laughs) That is amazing. And it's hard to imagine, Susan, how you will fill your time when you aren't in weekend-long board meetings deciding on whether or not to impeach our president. But thank you so much for being here today and also for your contributions over all of these presidential terms. Well, thank you, Molly, and thanks for
1: doing this great podcast series, including the one that I admired with Monica and Dale and Jeff. Thank you. Thank you so
0: much. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this conversation, please be sure to subscribe to At Liberty wherever you get your podcasts and rate and review the show. We so appreciate the feedback. Until next week, stay strong.